You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist and also an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be discussing genomics, including the role of molecular profiling, biomarker testing for blood cancers across the treatment continuum, clinical applications, and also financial implications. We'll be joined by Dr. Rafael Fonseco, who is the Getz Family Professor of Cancer, Professor of Medicine, Chief Innovation Officer, and a consultant in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Rafael, thanks for joining us. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to our conversation. So I just want to reflect for a minute, having been in practice for Oh, it's about over 30 years now, but how exciting it has been for, I think, all of us, but I especially want to say those of us that started before all the profiling was available, how exciting it's been. So I want to start out with, before we start even talking about the basics, what's your view, your hope in terms of where we'll be, not just today, but even 10 years from now in terms of you know a newly diagnosed patient? with any type of blood cancer, as it refers to genomics? Thank you. Well, I think that's a great question. And it just goes without saying that if you project what we have seen in the past, we'll just see more and more utilization broadly of what we call genomics. And particularly hematology, which uh, of course is core to the mission of LLS, this is something that has existed for some time, but clearly it's accelerating and doing so rapidly because it allows us to have First of all, a better understanding of the diseases we're dealing with. All hematologists know now that precise classification of the various disease types we deal with, oftentimes that it can only be done, and it's only done once you engage in some form of genetics or genomics testing. And doing so is, of course, as I mentioned, it's critical, so we understand what we're dealing with. Historically, it was critical as well, too, because it would dictate various treatment pathways and approaches. But more importantly, now it's becoming critical when we think about treatment because of the selection of specific treatments that may target some of this genomic or genetic abnormalities. And it's probably worthwhile that I just take a quick step back and say that when we talk about genomics, it's kind of a very broad word, right? It's a big tent. And honestly, I don't think there's a commonly agreed upon definition. We're just talking about the universe of tests that now exist that can, in one way or another, end up testing the genetic makeup and, of course, the genetic abnormalities associated with uh, the cancer cells and, you know, blood cancer cells in our case. But even goes beyond that, because when we're talking about the genetic testing for normal cells, for germline, of course, looking at susceptibility, and also then, you know, if you take the argument forward, this kind of also links to the whole thing of modifications of the DNA, the epigenomics, metabolomics, the understanding of the various metabolites, and so forth. So the ending in omics can describe many things, but genomics is really that big tent that encompasses the study of those abnormalities that we know are critical for the start and the propagation of this cancer cells in the bone marrow lymph nodes. So let me ask you, is it fair to say 
that, you know, again, right now, we've certainly learned a lot about genomics in terms of sequencing and looking for gene mutations. And we've learned also separately about proteomics, and I love the word metabolomics, so thank you. But integrating those three has seemed like sort of one of the challenges of the future. How do we do that? How are we going to crack that nut? Yes, I think there's a couple of aspects that I would say there. One is there are certain things that are so well established that just need to be recognized for the foundational effect they have in the understanding of a certain disease. And I don't think we do a good enough job sometimes in representing how that plays out. So at the very high level, I can start with simple things. You know, if you look at patients with follicular lymphoma, well, we can argue about the various subtypes and the gene expression profiling and what have you. Foundational to that disease is the fact that the patient will have a translocation between chromosomes 14 and 18. And there's no way around that. And so that becomes uh, really a core element, almost like the soul or the bad soul, call it, of one of those cancer cells that drives what we're seeing. Okay. Now, th- why do I say this? It's critically important to recognize that you will hear that people talk about this clonal heterogeneity and this diversity of cells. And that is so true. I work in the field of myeloma. And we have published papers on this and participated in that research. But I always say it's important to remember if you read a paper of the subclonal nature of multiple myeloma, we're talking about subpopulations of cells that are slightly different from the next. They're nearly identical between those populations. So what we're seeing are minor variations in secondary genetic changes that, that they may be minor numerically, but they could impart significant differences on how some cells respond or not to another treatment. They become refractory and those things. So I think we have the core abnormalities and we have things like this clonal selection. But your question is, how do we integrate all of this? I think it's important to recognize that cancer in general, and again, blood cancers are no exception to this, are incredibly complex system. And I'd like to make the distinction between complex and complicated, which I've learned from one of my colleagues, Dr. Post, which he states, complicated is more like engineering. Like you can't predict, you know, In some ways, if you may, getting to Mars is complicated, but it's not complex. You know what you need. You need the thrust, you need the food, you need this time of travel and so forth. But in biology Mm -hmm. and in cancer, it's very, very complex because you cannot completely anticipate everything. So I think we'll be able to put more and more stories together. So we might know, okay, this is the type of disease that is dictated by this specific genetic abnormality. We know this are two or three of the common pathways by which the disease progresses. Perhaps this knowledge would allow us to say, Because of this, the future involves the use of targeted agents, but more often than not, I think it's going to be either in combination between them or in combination with other standard treatments. But I think we should anticipate that there is going to be a percentage of cases that will not fall into any very specified subcategory, and that is just because of the complex nature of cancer. But I think we're getting closer. I mean, it is very complicated. It all relates to our technology, the tools. You say, okay, fine, you have genes and they have a mutation. But then how does that play down into, okay, the expression of the genes, the RNA level, maybe the proteins, and the proteins can have post-translational modification. And then we can, with the proteins, we can see, okay, what's the effect on the normal metabolism of the cells? And that's where all those omic steps go down that stepwise approach. But ultimately, that's really what drives the behavior of those cancers. And from our goal perspective, that's the way we will understand it and continue to find better ways to go about treating them. So almost, a, you know, essentially a historical question, but it applies to the present too. A patient is admitted with AML. They have already had their cytogenetics and the cytogenetics are normal. And let's even say that the probes that we do using FISH are negative. For the patient who truly looks like everything is normal, 
Okay, you've really probed it. You've really looked into it carefully. Where are the abnormalities likely to be? And both now and in the future, is that going to make a difference, getting down to understanding what's wrong with those patients that they have a cancer? That's a great question. And it happens in all cancers. It can happen in leukemia and MDS and in myeloma. And I would say my first reaction would be to say in a situation like that, the most likely thing we're seeing is really a quote-unquote false negative because it just reflects uh, the limitations that we have with our current technology because in many of those cases, as you go on and then you apply the next layer of technology, so like next generation sequencing, it's not unusual that we find things. And there must be some things that are core and sustaining to the growth of those clonal cells. I would be reminded by the members of the audience that, of course, there's other factors that play into how cancer can grow and propagate, like the microenvironment, the immune regulation that other cells would provide, and so forth. But the drive, the grit of those cells to grow has to come from some intrinsic feature of those cells that ultimately makes them have that cancer behavior. And and, and those were the abnormalities that gave rise to the clone in the first place. I think that paradigm is pretty well established. So as we're doing things like uh, next generation sequencing, which more and more is being integrated into the clinic, perhaps at some point, more so in the future than it's done right now, more epigenetics, where the epigenetic alteration of certain genes may modulate their expression and behavior, I think we'll have a better understanding of what it is. So I do see patients with myeloma that we've done, you know, all the fish probes and everything is negative. And I know that it's just that I'm not using the probes, not that I knew which would those be, but I'm not using the probes that would give me that information. So always worth remembering something like fish. You know, you really are asking close-ended questions that have answered yes or no, whereas uh, next-generation yeah. sequencing, those are open-ended questions that will just try to address the problem at large. Yeah, th- absolutely. Thank you. That really clarifies it. It's an interesting thought that these are false negatives. So let me ask you now, referring to myeloma, for example, but I want to talk about myeloma, and then let's talk some about it. AML and, and other diseases as you see fit, but what would be considered sort of the standard of care now in terms of molecular profiling or just profiling of our patients' cancers? Well, yes. First of all, I would say if you're going to talk about the standard of care, it always needs to come timestamped because this is changing all the time, right? I have to confess my detailed knowledge is, of course, more relevant to multiple myeloma because that's my area of practice and my research, but let's use that as an example. So you take a patient who is newly diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and if you go back 20, 25 years, we used to do karyotype analysis. Nowadays, we don't do that because they're very low yield, and most patients give uh, information that comes from metaphases that come out from their myeloid cells. So then we moved on to the area of fish, where we try to identify the common translocations, some deletions in particular for chromosome 17. We look at abnormalities of chromosome 8, looking at MYC and looking for ploidy changes that could be indicating hyperdiploid. So that was can, and has been the level of resolution. Subsequent to that, we had a work from the University of Arkansas and others that looked at gene expression profiling that really established that as the most powerful way to establish prognosis for a number of reasons which go beyond the scope of this podcast. This never really gained traction in the market, so it's not a test that is commonly done, so we are mostly doing the fish. But the next phase comes out now because of next generation sequencing. And there's some really tantalizing observations. Today, if a patient has minus 17 deletion for multiple myeloma, because of the historic data, we would say that patient has high risk disease. But a couple of publications have suggested that if you have 17P and you don't have a concurrent mutation on the P53 gene in the other allele, 
that really doesn't count as high risk. And of course, the conversation mm. that follows from that to a patient becomes critically important. I understand not all places can do this, but we at Mayo Clinic as an institution offer next generation sequencing and would do that routinely on the bone marrow samples that we obtain from patients, as long as there are sufficient cells, of course, to be tested. So I think that's mostly for the genetic characterization. Now we use genetics for other things that are really fascinating, and perhaps we can talk about this briefly, but that is the detection yeah, of minimal residual disease. So one of the interesting parts is that T cells like B cells, as we all know, they go through rearrangements of the receptor genes and they go through physiologic mutation, the so-called somatic hypermutation. So that allows us to identify DNA fingerprint for this abnormal cells. So when I do a bone marrow that is diagnostic, I will always add what's called the identification or the ID of this sequence. We use next generation assay that detects this sequences. So now in a future time where I want to know with great precision, meaning at the sensitivity of one in a million cells, we can repeat the same PCR and it will tell us how many copies we have of that per million cells, which allows for a more precise estimation of the presence of residual disease, continued drop in the count of those cells or rise in the number of those cells that would indicate progression. And that's really how we're doing it. And so for all diseases, it seems to be important. We know of all the work that has been done in lymphoma with, you know, double hit lymphoma, the application that this has for the various leukemia types and the selections of treatments and the selections of pathways, which sometimes they don't even necessarily imply that there's a different treatment, but you may stop at a certain point because if someone has a particularly good prognosis, maybe they don't need intensification phases and so forth. So now this is very complicated. I think it goes back to your previous questions and the idea that individuals who are in, in general oncology practice are going to have all of this memorized, it's probably impractical. I wouldn't say it should be a, an expectation, but in this new world where we have AI and big data and algorithms, I think we really need to work as a community so that some of this testing happens automatically and the results come back not only with the facts, but also with the recommendations. And I, I don't think that is far-fetched. I think health systems will get to the point soon that you don't even have to think. You say, I'm going to do a bone marrow. You might not even have to enter a diagnosis. Your pathology colleagues say, oh, this looks like AML. That means we have to do testing with this and that. Uh, by the way, we're going to do this genetic test. The tests come back. You communicate with a clinician and the report is, yes, the patient has this particular, uh, for instance, an IDH mutation for which there are these drugs that you should be considering in your toolkit. I think that's how we should go into the future. I mean, that's what happens with our cars, with our phones, with our computers. Why not bring that into medicine? You know what? Absolutely. So I, I want to be a very granular, even just for a minute or two, for practicing oncologists like myself and uh, the people who work with them. So I've done a bone marrow on a patient, and we find myeloma. Everything's been sent to the lab already. Is there a way then to very precisely identify what the sequence is that we can then follow looking for minimal residual disease, or is it too late? No, you can do that. However, for the sequence, for the ID, you need a fresh sample because the test has to be done with a fresh sample, unlike our solid tumor colleagues, that they can do all sorts of molecular tests out of the paraffin blocks. The fact that we do the decalcification and the various steps in processing of bone marrow prohibits that testing after the fact. Now, one of the interesting things, a very practical one, let's say you did a bone marrow, you didn't even know the patient had a possibility of myeloma, and lo and behold, the result comes back, the patient has myeloma. Well, one of the opportunities we have is one can use the slides that are done with the aspirate of the bone marrow 
And you can literally quote unquote, just scrape the cells of those slides and they can be used for that testing to select the ID. So ideal, these are unstained slides, so you can send them yeah. out, they scrape them, they collect that little dust that comes out and you know, run the PCR <laughs> and out of that wow. PCR that you get the DNA sequence for those cells. So that actually works very well. I mean, of course, if possible, the best thing is just to have the fresh sample and send that sample sure, now. Sure. There's other possibilities if a patient has a biopsy of another site that is not the bone marrow, like a plasma cytoma, that can also be wrong because usually they're not processed the same way the bone marrows are wrong. But, you know, in the ideal world, you would know beforehand. Thank you. I have wanted to ask that question, so I'm glad I uh, know now. I'm um, glad it worked. So I'd love to hear some examples of sort of essentially the clinical application. So, you know, in the last few weeks, I'm sure you've seen new patient with myeloma. And I'd love some examples, Raphael, about how you use it called the genomics and profiling. So this is really foundational on how we approach a patient. And I'll use an example and then I'll tell you about a patient. So we actually have decided that our treatment recommendations, uh, something that we built for myeloma that's called msmart.org, at the very first level starts by creating some stratification based on what the genetic markers are for patients. So to me, just first, this information is critical. It's so important that I would say that if I have a patient that comes from the outside and a bone marrow was done, and for whatever reason, the results are not available, or I wouldn't be satisfied with what I'm reading, then I would go ahead and recommend a bone marrow is repeated because that information will be critical in ways that I will show next. So first, what do you select for treatment? You know, I think there's a tendency always to say, well, for the high-risk patients, we're going to do more. We're going to put more combinations, more drugs. That is probably a conversation also beyond the scope of this interview, but what you don't want to do is ever hold back on anything on a patient that has high-risk disease. And I'm saying, again, okay. without doing any comparison with someone who has standard-risk disease. Then in myeloma, if you have high-risk disease, I think the conversation has to be different with the patient. High-risk itself would not dictate the destiny of a person who's diagnosed with something. It just tells you that it's more likely or less likely to happen. But if I have a myeloma patient that has chromosome 17 abnormalities and p53 mutations, I think that conversation is different from that of having a patient who has standard risk disease and perhaps no high risk markers for whom we have a higher degree of probability that that person will leave over a decade versus someone that has some of those high risk markers. So physicians always ask, what am I going to do different? I say, well, even before you start treatment, you're going to talk different to the patient. That's actionable. And we portray in a different way realistic expectations for what we're going to see. Then you start on treatment and let's say this patient, for the sake of the story, let's say this is a patient that is going to go through a stem cell transplant and you do a stem cell transplant. There's a body of literature, including significant literature from Europe that would suggest that after the stem cell transplant, you must never leave behind residual cells if the patient has high risk markers. That has shown empirically by the use of a second transplant, which is not common here in the United States, but they do that often in Europe. Mm -hmm for high-risk disease patients. But this idea of using this MRD test and then measuring the bone marrow and then finding that there's residual cells in the background, the patient has high-risk disease, and you're saying, well, I'm gonna cross my fingers and put you on standard maintenance, I really hold a strong opinion that I don't think that is sufficient. I think this is a recipe for relapse early on. So you yeah. have to yeah. think about different approaches for that particular patient. And also what we choose for maintenance, for consolidation or maintenance, the duration of therapy, post-transplant and so forth, becomes in many ways dictated by the risk classification for this person. So, and this is without drilling down into any of the specifics of the specific genetic markers, right? But right there, there's at least three major points at which we're gonna think different 
of a patient that has high-risk disease or not. Now, there's an often underappreciated point that I'd, I'd like to highlight here, and that is that high risk, first of all, can only explain about 35 to 40 percent of the clinical variability. In other words, 60 percent of the outcomes have nothing to do with what we call high risk or not. So patients have clinical features, comorbidities, toxicities that end up dictating what happens. I think that's a very important point. And the second one is one has to think very carefully about risk as we go through the lines of therapy. So if I'm seeing a patient that has very high risk disease and they unfortunately you know, pass away from their disease, this wouldn't be uncommon sometimes in the, even in the first two years. So if I'm reading a clinical trial that tells me about 30% of those patients in that clinical trial had high risk disease, but it turns out that these patients have received five or six prior lines of therapy, I know those are the good high risks because if they were not the good high risk, they would have not made it to be in the fifth line therapy. So I know it gets good a little point. bit nuanced yeah. and complicated, but I think those two things have to be kept in mind as we assess risk uh, classification. So, Inch, I mean, I actually, I think you've just framed that in terms of clinical applications, yes, you use the genomics, the profiling, but you're also tying in all the other factors, which are obviously just as important, patient's age, comorbidities, and the clinical course. Is, is that a fair summary? Oh, yes, yes. I think one of the things, and a mistake often, is to try to think of a biomarker, a single biomarker, as completely dictating everything that happens. I, in fact, have a slide that I show when I talk about myeloma. I say it's like flying a little Cessna plane. You have all these dials on your dashboard, and that's kind of how you assess where you are, altitude, gas, temperature, and those things. And that's what, you know, performance status, comorbidities, blood work, renal function, genetics, uh, prior tolerance to treatment. And so that's only one of the layers of what I was previously describing as complexity, right? Now, let me give you another example. Since you asked me about clinical, this is an example I really love. There's a subtype of myeloma, which is about 15% of myeloma cases. That is a myeloma that has the translocation 1114, similar to what is seen in mantle cell lymphoma. And this is no question. This is a different form of myeloma. It's sort of a younger form of myeloma, myeloma that arises from very young plasma cells. You know, these patients tend to have more of lymphoplasmacytic morphology. They can express the D20 and so forth. But for a practicing oncologist, I'll tell you something that's very neat. I will see patients for a second opinion, and I'm kind of trying to go through a treatment, and I suddenly come across the fact that the patient has an 1114. I call it one of those Easter eggs. So I'm hunting through that, and I yeah. find it. And it immediately opens new opportunities for treatment because we have been using BCL2 inhibitors, namely venetoclax, mm -hmm. for the treatment of patients yeah. with 1114. Yeah. And even though venetoclax should not be used at large in myeloma, in fact, there's some data that it may be even harmful in other versions of myeloma, there are subsets of multiple myeloma for whom venetoclax is so powerful. In one of these trials for the subset of patients with 1114, the hazard ratio was 0.1. I used to kind of have jokes say this is between, you are confused between the hazard ratio and the p-value at that point. But, you know, venetoclax can be used in combination with protosome inhibitors. More recently, we're using it in combination with the artumumab and seeing just absolutely dramatic responses in this patient population. So there's another example now, not only of uh, prognosis, but of the application for the selection of a specific Absolutely. therapy. But, but uh, by the way, for that type of patient with that, that type of myeloma, would you think about adding venetoclax up front if you were seeing them for a first opinion rather than a second? Oh, I wish. And I think it's kind of right at the boundary of probably extreme mischief doing that. By the way, venetoclax is not FDA approved, I should note for the audience. So, so it's, been used, <laughs> it's been used off, off label. 
But we have used it at the moment more in patients who have failed prior therapies and are relapsing from their myeloma. I have used it early in the relapse sort of, of a person with 1114 multiple myeloma. But all of what I'm saying is just regulatory and coverage. I think scientifically, we urgently need to understand if this can be used up front. I think patients with primary plasma cell leukemia, 50% of them have an 1114. Patients with light chain amyloidosis, 50% of them have 1114. As I mentioned, 15% of patients with myeloma have this. And I think if we always make the argument that you have to put your best treatments up front, it's more of uh, something that needs to be demonstrated empirically and administratively we need the approval. But I think venetoclax ultimately should become part of frontline therapy for myelomas like this. Yeah, very exciting. Topic that I think we think about and to be honest, you know, when I make it, and it's financial implications, but when I'm seeing patients, you know, I candidly don't think about it that much. I'm, you know, we're able usually to get patients what they need, but what are some of the financial implications you're hearing from your patients in terms of these drugs and their costs? Yeah, no, and, and this would extend as well too to what we're talking about, the biomarkers, right? And I think one has to be mindful of that. Fortunately, as some of these assays get approved and they get, you know, if the approval and that get the coverage uh, by CMS, it's more common that, you know, they will have the coverage. But still, some of them could be associated with an out-of-pocket expense for patients. I know at the national level, there's several efforts. In fact, here in the state of Arizona, and I may be misspeaking, I can't remember specifically, but several societies supported some legislation that would really have a requirement that biomarkers be paid for in those patients that there is clinical evidence that the biomarker would be of benefit. So we have that now here in the state of Arizona, which is really uh, fantastic and we all have to be judicious. But if I were a payer, I would say, well, what argument can you tell me of why I should not grimace when I have to pay some of this genomic testing of these biomarkers? And I want to make the argument that you really have to think about it from the perspective of the total cost of care and from the perspective of value, not of cost. I, I think, let me use the example of MRD. I think MRD is going to allow us to better tailor treatment for myeloma and ultimately should be able to have as a consequence, a more abbreviated course of therapy for multiple myeloma. Right now, if you go through induction therapy and then you get a transplant and you go on maintenance, the notion is you're going to be in maintenance for a long period of time with the burden to the patient, of course, first and foremost, with symptoms and what they have to go through if they get the treatment. But what for the patient and the payer as well, too, with the financial burden and for what that means. But what if in the near future, if you have a patient that achieves a certain level of MRD and that MRD is sustained, maybe we can discontinue therapy. So it would be pound foolish to say, we're not going to pay for that because the standard is to consider with two years of therapy versus saying, yes, happily, I'm going to be able to pay for this because this might result in me having to have less payments over the lifespan of the per person's uh, journey. The second one, and that, that's what I call actually the x-axis and therapy. So that's a duration of therapy. But the second one would be the y-axis yeah. and that's the depth in the response. And where I think we're going with that is if you have uh, genomic testing, again, something like the next generation sequencing for MRD, and you are able to document a very deep level of response, and, and you do so not only in clinical trials, but also at the individual level, I think we're going to start seeing that some of those patients' responses will convert into cures. I personally feel that we already cure a fraction of our myeloma patients. By doing so, and by having this biomarker give you the, the confidence that you have reached that, and if by reaching that point, you prevent someone from having to ever receive treatment again, 
there's a lot of money that is saved. And I'm not even talking about the you know, return to work and economic productivity of the person. So I think when people talk about financial implications and they talk about financial toxicity, which is critically important, I kind of don't like those terms. I think we need to work more with economists. I don't think we as doctors necessarily have all the tools because what we need to look is at the total cost of care. That is the most important thing. And of course, there's sometimes going to be incredibly expensive things. And I'm sure there are things that are wasteful because they haven't been completely stuck in their benefit, but we should just take that very holistic and comprehensive view. So finally, as I'm listening to all this information, which is incredibly interesting, I'm also thinking some of it's pretty darn complex, especially for our patients, some of whom are, again, highly educated, want to learn about their disease. So what are some good resources for patients and their families who want to learn more about profiling of their cancer and also for clinicians who really want to provide stuff and in the community want to provide state-of-the-art care? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, there's so many sources. And of course, we want to steer people towards authoritative sources. Starting from that, of course, you have groups like uh, LLS that has really curated a vast array of uh, resources that patients and their families can use, but also health professionals. Like them, there are other patient organizations that do that as well, too. I find that a lot of my patients do as well find connectivity. This is sometimes informational and sometimes it's for the support part through the various networks and patient support groups, often through social media in the modern world. So I I think those are some of the resources. And of course, for patients themselves, but as well for providers, I mean, just the ability that now exists for conversations around new research findings and publications, et cetera, that occur in places like Twitter is really remarkable. I think that's an incredible learning place. But I would say start with number one, with kind of the authoritative resources. And that's, yeah, shout out, of course, to LLS. Very good. And I will second that as well. This is Dr. Ken Miller, and I want to thank all of you for listening to this incredible episode. We've been talking about genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, all different ways to really profile our patients' blood cancers. And it's really clear that the ability to use this information is growing and growing, and uh, which is exciting for, I think, all of us and our patients, too. I'd like to share with you, firstly, my thanks for having Dr. Rafael Fonseca, who is the Getz Family Professor of Cancer, Professor of Medicine, Chief Innovation Officer at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Rafael, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. If you want to learn more about this topic or a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org slash CE. And again, for any questions or refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. 
Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.